Um, it's been in the news recently that Scandinavian dramas and fictions and films are particularly popular. They're undergoing something of, of a renaissance. Um, they're very dark, if you haven't seen them or read them, but it's likely you may have heard of them. So think of the, the Dragon Tattoo trilogy in the literary realm. Or on TV, The Killing, or, or Wallander. Very popular at the moment. And so people have started to ask, why? Why is there this blossoming, blossoming popularity from Scandinavian drama? What's going on? Listen to this from um, a professor of English at UCL called John Sutherland. He says this, he says, Scandinavian crime fiction rests on a reading of human nature that is alien but currently fascinating to the Anglo-American mind. He says, now the book, for example, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, is full of unpleasant things with unpleasant people. But the argument goes, these are not abnormal people. So he continues this, one of the prison guards is not, the novel intimates, a uniquely rotten apple in the Swedish justice system. He's just a man. And as a man is stained to his core with original sin which he chooses to indulge, not all men, thank God, do indulge it, he says. But you can never remove that indelible mark of sin and the temptation to do it. It is God's tattoo on the human soul. He continues, I don't know if Swedish radio has anything equivalent to the Today's programme thought for the day, but if it does, I wouldn't mind betting it's very different from what we hear and I suspect a lot less wishy-washy. He concludes with this. He says, The Scandinavians have got to grips with the causes and circumstances of crime more resourcefully than anybody else. But there is one thing they believe that you can never put right. The old Adam. Beneath the peace, prosperity, culture, education is an evil that no welfare state, however benign, can eradicate. What a fascinating article. He says, the Scandinavian framework and mindset and worldview is different to ours, and it's, it's why we're attracted to these programmes, these books, these films. They're aware of and they're honest with the darkness of their own hearts, what they're really like, the brokenness that we see in all of us that, that spills out into the lives of others. And in our little series leading up to Easter, we've been thinking a bit about how God caters for this, this brokenness, that the darkness of our hearts, our actions. And we've said it's one of the fundamental questions at the very heart of the Bible. How is it that a God that is so good can be in relationship with people that aren't? How does it work? And we've said that substitution is something that we need to get to grips with. As we read through the Bible to understand that question, we saw back at the start, we saw at Genesis 22, a one-for-one substitution. Isaac being substituted with a ram. And then last time in Exodus 12, as Woody was teaching the kids, we saw one for a family at the Passover. Substitution again, but it's expanding. And then this week, the Day of Atonement, we have one for the nation. Because to be very clear, the Bible says God is a God of love. A God of love who is relationship from eternity past in mutual love and cooperation with one another, Father, Son, Spirit, and then out of this love flows creation, a world of humans to whom he shows love. He walks in the garden, whom he loves to love. 
But then he's a God of justice, a God who is good, perfectly good. Who, who heard what we said about that colleague, or, or those thoughts that we had last week, or how we acted when we lost our temper and we instantly regretted it, but the actions were there. Or when we thought we were completely alone by ourselves, but he was there. He is perfectly good. He knows the reality of our sin better than any Scandinavian storyteller. The darkness of our hearts. So how do you have this God who is good and people who are dark and sinful? It's a great question. We'll see lots of it this morning in Leviticus 16. We will, if you like, begin the answer back in the Old Testament and then we will fast forward ahead to Hebrews to get some more clarity. But I'm assuming that the Day of Atonement isn't one of your favourite passages that you know back to back. So we will spend quite a bit of work there to work out what's going on and how it points forward. So Leviticus is a book of sacrifices. And essentially what happens is sacrifices restore relationships. Vertical relationships with God that are broken and horizontal relationships with one another that are ruined too. Where sin before a holy God should lead to death, so the blood from the sacrifice, in some sense, restores the relationship, deals with the problem. And that's at the heart of chapter 16. So, first point on the PowerPoint. How interesting. Two goats, once a year, the ritual and the reason. First thing to say is chapter 16 is in the wrong place. Okay, if you were reading through Leviticus, strictly speaking, chapter 16 should really be at chapter 11. Chapter 10, we read of Aaron's sons dying. Nadab and Abihu incorrectly approached God. They didn't follow it to the letter, so they died. And then chapter 16 picks that up, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain, in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Just like last week, we don't worship God as we like. There's no room for imagination or creativity or deviation from the way that God tells us to worship him, the means by which we can come to him. God says, hear who I am, and here's who, what you need to do. Anything else is false worship. And Nadab and Abihu found that to their cost in chapter 10. But why is there this delay between 10 to 16? What do 11 to 15 add? What point is being made in Leviticus? I think one reason, but two themes. The first is that chapter 11 to 15 has a whole load of stuff about sin and dirtiness and uncleanness, these pollutants that make it impossible for man to meet with God. So 11 to 15 are there as a sort of double underlining. Here's why you cannot do it. Here is how holy God is. And here is how dark you are. Here's how desperately you need sacrifice. But as well, chapter 16 is in the exact middle of the book. And the passage in the middle... In Hebrew writing, that's the one to focus on. That's the one we concentrate on. So the Day of Atonement, it's physically in the very middle and it's culturally, it's part of their, their religious worship in the very centre of their lives as well. 
in terms of the content and the argument and the themes of the book, it's in the very middle too. So if that's the heart of the book, have a look at verse 30 to 34 to see the heart of the chapter, the conclusion of what's going on on the Day of Atonement. Verse 30, on this day atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord you will be clean from all your sins. Verse 34, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. So it's a chapter about removing dirt, getting rid of uncleanness. But before we get there to the conclusion, there are stages that we need to go through, things that need to happen. There are three basic sets of sacrifices, as far as I can see, in Leviticus 16. And the first one is for the priest, Aaron. He is not perfect. And so the Lord says, here's how you deal with Aaron. Verse 3. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him, put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments. He must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin, offering to make atonement for himself and his household. So, verse 4, he washes himself first. Then what he wears is spelt out. He can't just decide his clothes for the day. He needs to wear linen undergarments and a tunic with a linen sash. Which is fascinating, because it's a real dressing down from his normal garb. Normally he'd be wearing brightly coloured material, intricate design and jewellery and gold and splendour, showing his status, showing how important he is. But here he's in servant's clothes. It's very humble as he stands in the company of God in the most holy place. He's stripped of all human honour. And he's wearing linen. We'll move on again to verse 11 and 12 and look at the sacrifices for himself and his own sin. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. A thoroughly sinful, dirty human priest seeking to fulfil his duties at the climax of the religious calendar and so every base is covered by the Lord. His clothing is clarified there are sacrifices for him and for his family. And that's the priest. There's our first set of sacrifices to go through. The next one, we've got priests, next one is place. They must cleanse the tent. Remember, Leviticus is basically a nomadic travelling people on their way to the promised land. They've been rescued from Egypt. We saw that last week, chapter 12. We saw the Passover. And yet they are not yet there yet. They are not at the land promised to Abraham. And so what would happen is that they would settle and they would camp and it would be exactly as God told them. Zones of tents for the different families, different groups of families. And then when God said they would be up and they would travel again. And taken down and you do it again. Packed up and packed down. Packed up and packed down. In the very middle of the, the camp you have got God's tent the heart of God's people, you have the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. This is where the sacrifices would happen. The very heart of the people, God lives. 
But in that tent, in the tabernacle tent of meeting, you've got geography. The first room is the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. In there you've got the Ark of the Covenant, you've got two tablets, and then you've got the Ten Commandments on the tablets. And the most holy place is accessible, but just to one man, just once a year, separated by a curtain. The second room inside the tabernacle is the holy place, altar of incense, candlesticks, various other things going on there. The altar for the burnt offerings outside the tent, but in the cordoned off area. And so as well as seeking to make sacrifices for himself, the tent needs to be purified too. And the things he's going to use for the sacrifices, the articles. So again, follow from verse 15. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites. Whatever their sins have been, he is to do the same for the tent of meeting which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. But really that's just preparation. They're just getting ready. The Day of Atonement itself is about the people. The priest is now able to minister. The place is clean and suitable for sacrifices. But now it's the people, the Israelites. And these come in the forms of two goats and a ram. And this is where it's all been heading. We're going to focus in on the goats. And they come up firstly in verse 5 and then in verse 8. Verse 5, from the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Down to verse 8. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. So two goats in mind, similar jobs, but they represent different things. Aaron is to firstly cast a lot to decide which does which. Goat number one, we're going to call him Jeffrey. (laughs) Jeffrey is going to be a sin offering. You can read about sin offerings later in chapter four, but they are for the unintentional sins of the people, sins that aren't deliberate. What happens in chapter 4 is that the elders of the community, the representatives, come and lay their hands on the head of the animal and they slaughter it. The animal dies instead of the people. That's Geoffrey. Goat 2 is Gerald. Geoffrey is dead. Gerald, for now, is alive. He is the scapegoat, the one who takes the blame of the people away outside the camp. Pick it up at verse 20. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat, Gerald. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. So the sin and so the guilt of the people is transferred upon the goat, and the goat is removed from outside the people, released into the unclean desert. 
no longer among them, the removal of their sin from their midst to an unholy place. And that's it. We have the priests and the place and the people and sacrifices for each. This is how they're to do it. This would be their annual ceremony, their reminder. But I guess the elephant in the room is why? Why are they to do this? And in answer to that, there's one key word that we've used a bit but not really got to grips with yet, and that's atonement. It comes up 20 times in these 34 verses. It's called the Day of Atonement. But what's it about? Again, we find ourselves with that initial question, how can a God who is so good and people who are so dark and sin so much, how can they be in relationship? It's as if God has an allergy to sin. He, he's, as you know, someone who comes into the room and uncontrollably starts sneezing because there are flowers there. <coughs> Somebody who has an intolerance to dairy, they can't just get over it. It's part of who they are. Well, so the loving, good God is unable to exist with sin. Atonement. It's a word that was coined by an old master of Balliol College, Oxford, a man called John Wycliffe. He was translating the Bible and he found nothing quite fitted the concept. And so he, he made a word. Meant simply means to make. So, so settlement means you make settle. And atonement means you make at one. Atonement is bringing two parties back together. It's reconciling two hostile parties. And what causes hostility between God and man? Sin. What needs to be dealt with for reconciliation to occur? Sin does. What is atonement about? Dealing with sin. And it's very visual and very striking in this chapter. You've got these two goats, Geoffrey, He dies. He is punished because of the sin of the people. Death and punishment are inevitable because of sin. And so Geoffrey's blood is spilt. And Gerald, well for him, the high priest lays hands on him. He confesses the wickedness of the people and the rebellion and the sin and away the goat goes. Sin is transferred, taken away. So atonement happens. Reconciliation is now, in some senses, possible. The the two parties back together again. And so that is the Day of Atonement. The heart of the book of Leviticus, the heart of the, the Israelite calendar. Year by year by year by year, again and again and again and again, running on the treadmill. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Constant, painful reminder of sins piling up again and again and again. A reminder of the distance between a God who is good and people like us. And we say, well, hang on, surely they need some kind of sacrifice that will, that will last forever. Something that means you don't need to keep coming back again. That is once for all. Or maybe even a sacrifice that will start to change your heart so that you don't keep sinning. 
one that doesn't just deal with sins of the past year, but the future year as well. And that is the story of the letter to the Hebrews. You're going to need to find Hebrews with me. We're in Hebrews chapter 10. If you were here last summer, you might remember a mini-series in Hebrews 10 and 11. So some of this may be familiar. Hopefully a helpful reminder. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1. For this reason it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Skip to verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So back in Leviticus 16, access was there, but it was incredibly limited, wasn't it? One man with limited access once a year, and God even said, Aaron is not to come whenever he chooses. But now it's extraordinary. Because Jesus entered once and for all, because atonement was made forever as high priest and sacrifice, so everyone who trusts him has unconditional access. Everywhere, all the time. And everyone, it's not just the high priest, it's not just the people of Israel, it's Gentiles too. All nations can come and worship God. And it's everywhere. You don't need a building. You don't need a tabernacle or a temple or even a church building. And it's all the time. You don't need a particular day in the year. He'll go on and say, draw near in faith. The way to God is open because of Christ's death. You don't need to wait for a special day. You can do it all the time. The command was to Aaron, don't come whenever you like. And now God says, all of you, come whenever you like, because of Jesus. And actually it turns out the shocker is, back to Leviticus 16 again, they didn't work. The animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were inadequate to really deal with sin. Verse 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Imagine with me then, it's one of the many family squabbles in the Steele household and child X has been naughty, grumpy, rude, mean, whatever it might be. And so we say to them, well you know that bad behaviour has consequences. That's it, actually you're both grounded for this. And child Y says, that's not fair. With a glint in their eye, hang on, can't somebody else be punished for us? I'm sure we sing about that at church, don't we Dad? Here, what about Delilah the hamster? Can't you ground her instead of us? 
Can't she take our punishment instead of us? Couldn't she be our, our substitute? Another glint in the eye. And the writer to the Hebrews says, no, no, you need a person to take the sin of a person. Finally, a goat or a bull won't actually work as a substitute. The blood sacrifices back there, they they were arrows that were pointing ahead to one who would come. That their deaths were foreshadowing his death. Actually, the animal deaths were just big highlighter pens, reminding them again of their sin. That the cleansing and the atonement outlined in Leviticus 16, I take it, only worked because of what Jesus would do. Because of his death on the cross. It was as if they were getting it on credit from his sufficient sacrifice. And so as Christ dies and the Gospel writers describe the temple curtain being torn in two and the separation not there anymore. So we have access. And so we can draw near with faith. Atonement finally made forever for God's people. Now we need to pause here for a second. And I've weighed up doing this next section over the last week, but we're going to go for it. It seems to me this is a great opportunity for us to think about how we can pray for the Pope. This new guy who's come in, he seems a very humble man, he seems a nice man. I'm not a Catholic scholar, but it seems to me that Hebrews 10 is very helpful for us as we think about how we can pray for him and the Catholic Church. Just a couple of things to pick up on. Pray that he might grasp the sufficiency of Jesus' death once for all. One of the key meetings at the Catholic Church in the past was the Council of Trent. And Canon 3 says this. It says, If anyone says that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and dead, for sins, pains, satisfactions and other necessities, let him be an anathema. Which means, the weekly Mass in the Catholic Church, they say, is, a, is in some sense a re-sacrifice of Jesus. What we do here at Mordham Road, Council of Trent would say, as we remember with bread and wine, as we commemorate, is wrong. For us not to re-sacrifice Jesus at the Mass, then we are an anathema, that is, accursed and to be excommunicated. To pray that he might grasp something of the sufficiency of Jesus' death once for all. Secondly, as well, the sufficiency of the death of Jesus to remove our sin entirely. The Council of Trent, Canon 30, if anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be an anathema. That is, if you die tonight, you will not go straight to Jesus. Rather, purgatory will finally have to cleanse you of your sins, cleanse you of your dirt. You are to undergo purification. And of course, we don't deny ongoing sin. 
You look back at your week. Look back at your morning and you'll see that. We, we don't deny the distance that we still feel between ourselves and a holy God. We're still in these bodies. We still muck up. We still hurt people. Our hearts are still dirty. And yet how God sees us is not how we see ourselves. He sees us through Christ's righteousness. As we sing, he sees us in Christ alone. That's where our hope is. So pray that he might see the sufficiency of the death of Jesus. Sufficient for all, once. You don't need to keep redoing it. But sufficient too to remove our sins entirely. So that in God's eyes we are clean because of Christ. Now as we finish, listen to how the very last act of the drama works where we see atonement perfectly, finally enjoyed forever. And again, we were here in January. Revelation 21 and verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with his people and he will live with them. There will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Perfect atonement. Sinful bodies done with. New heavens and new earth. The barrier of sin no longer there. We won't sin. We can't sin. Perfect at-one-ment. Now the dwelling of God is with man. A couple of things as we finish. Just to take and reflect on and think on this week, perhaps chew over as we approach Easter. The first, and that's something that's really struck me again in Leviticus 16, is how much it costs to deal with sin. It is so costly, we easily lose something of that in our sanitised culture, but it was incredibly graphic and vivid, and there was blood, and it took a long time, and there were animals, and there were sacrifices that they had to go through to make atonement. Imagine that was us on a Sunday morning every week. We would recognise how costly our sin is. Or what it took up in their diary, or their budget, or their planning for the year. The continuous, necessary treadmill of religion, of, of ritual. God's justice. Too easily I can be tempted to be a bit blasé about it. I think, well, it's all right, isn't it? I've got the cross. And take it for granted. Maybe this Easter, take some time just to meditate and to think and to, to recognise afresh the justice of God. Maybe to come on Good Friday to our service with Woody Rose. What it costs to make atonement. Because God is so good because he's just. Second one is God of love. The fact that he is a loving God and that he loves people and he pays that heavy cost for us. He, he deals with his right anger against our sin and it's not an innocent third party and it's not an animal. But he comes and does it himself through his son. His son dying in the place of his people. He, he hates sin, but he loves people. 
and the cross is proof of that.